You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing you articles of interest from a variety of sources. This one is being recorded on the 9th of November for the listening week that begins the 11th, and your reader's name is Susan Shirey. This week I've called through my archived files to find articles that may be worthy of a listen from previous months. So for starters, we'll hear a few of those. First one comes from the New York Times, an August 3rd edition. Satchmo's Wonderful World Louis Armstrong Center Amplifies an Artist's Vision New Jazz and Exhibition Spaces and an inaugural show curated by Jason Morin feature the trumpeter's history collaged onto the walls. This is written by Melina Rizik. And a caption under the photo at the heading says, Large circular vitrines inside the new Louis Armstrong Center hold artifacts from Armstrong's 60,000-piece archive including 700 tapes that were once housed miles away at Queens College. Jason Moran has curated the first permanent exhibition titled Here to Stay. You can find anything in Queens, and yet for decades, the Louis Armstrong House Museum has been a well-kept secret on a quiet street in Corona. The longtime residents of the famed jazz trumpeter, singer, and bandleader It is a mid-century interior design treasure hidden behind a modest brick exterior. The museum's new extension, the 14,000-square-foot Louis Armstrong Center, blends in a little less. It looks, in fact, a bit like a 1960s spaceship landed in the middle of a residential block. By design, it doesn't tower over its neighboring vinyl-sided houses, but... With its curvilinear roof, it does seem to want to envelop them. And behind its rippling brass facade lie some ambitious goals. To connect Armstrong as a cultural figure to fans, artists, historians, and his beloved Queen's community. To extend his civic and creative values to generations that don't know how much his vision and his very being changed things. It wants, above all, to invite more people in. The house is relatively small, said Regina Bain, executive director of the House Museum and Center, speaking of the two-story dwelling where Armstrong lived with his wife Lucille from 1943 until his death in 1971. But his legacy is humongous, she went on, and this is the building that will help us to launch that. The center, 25 years in development, includes exhibition, research and education areas, and for events, a 75-seat performance space whose blonde wood and intimacy recall Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola, the jazz at Lincoln Center venue. I think that this will do something that we haven't quite seen in a jazz space, said Jason Moran, the jazz pianist and composer who was the center's inaugural exhibition curator, he went on. That's also something that my community needs to witness, too. 
It needs to watch. How can we take care of an artist's history? And what else can it unleash in a community that might not even care about the art, but might care about something else related to it? Armstrong gives us all those opportunities to do that. For the architects, Sarah Caples and Everardo Jefferson, the project was a puzzle in how to link two structures. The center is across the street from the Armstrong House Museum with the spirit of a musical legend. Their inspiration came by going back to the music and to Armstrong's street-level roots. Caples said, That kind of neighborhood that jazz actually emerged from, that wasn't an elite creation, it was a popular creation. And yet it was the music that revolutionized how we think, how we listen, how we think about non-musical things even. They rounded the front of the center to nod to the Armstrong house. Its brass curtain echoes the cor- pardon me. Its brass curtain echoes the color of his horn, and the musically fluent may notice echoes oh, pardon me again, I'll start that over. Its brass curtain echoes the colors of his horn, and the musically fluent may notice the staggered hoop shapes and columns in the entryway map out the notes of his most celebrated songs like What a Wonderful World and Dinah. They also wanted to give their blueprint the sense of joy that Armstrong brings, the smile that you can feel in his singing voice. When they started the project, Jefferson called an uncle, who's a jazz saxophonist, to ask, really, what made Armstrong so special? Jefferson said, and he said, you know, when you hear his music, you feel like dancing down the street. At the ribbon-cutting ceremony earlier this summer, trumpeters performed on the Armstrong House balcony and across the road on the upper deck of the center a fanfare that started with the opening bars of West End Blues and ended with What a Wonderful World. Capel said, It was an incredible moment. The building participated as a reflector of sound back to the street. Afterward, schoolchildren were invited in to plonk around on a Steinway. Built on the site of a former parking lot, With $26 million in mostly state and local funding, the new center encompasses Armstrong's 60,000-piece archive, including 700 tapes that were once housed miles away at Queens College. From that collection, Moran has curated the first permanent exhibition called Here to Stay, with a multimedia interactive centerpiece of audio, video, interviews, and songs. There's Armstrong's gold-plated trumpet, a gift from King George V, complete with his favorite imported German lip balm, and the mouthpiece, pardon me, inscribed Sachmo, his nickname, and his college art. Parentheses. He made hundreds of pieces, paper cutouts on tape cases. His first and last passports among the ephemera show his evolution from New Orleans-born youth player to a global icon in a tuxedo and an irrepressible grin. Armstrong was himself a documentarian, traveling with cameras and recording equipment and turning the mic on himself. 
his friends and loved ones in private moments, telling jokes backstage, opining at home. As a black artist with an elementary school education who was born into segregation, he went on to hobnob with presidents and royalty and to meet the Pope. Moran said, He really marks a way of being a public figure, and he has to weigh how he does that if he's getting a chance not only to tell his story with the trumpet in his mouth, but through these microphones, then what are the stories he wants to tell? Not in public. Those become important. One place his vision is most evident is in his reel-to-reel tape box collages, rarely displayed publicly until now. Armstrong used them as an outlet for years. If he has a press clipping, maybe it wasn't favorable. He could cut it up and make a collage, said Moron. A photo in the exhibition shows him after a trip to Italy, pasting his artwork on the ceiling of his den, fresco style. Parentheses again. Lucille Armstrong, a former Cotton Club dancer who was his fourth wife, put a stop to that. Moron recalled that when Armstrong talked about his process and why he liked making collages... He explained that with just the push-pull of material on a small canvas, you can change, quote, the story that you were given. It echoed his expertise as a musician, said Moran, learning how to play background on the cornet, with King Oliver, his early mentor, or foreground as he redefined what it meant to be a soloist, upending his destiny along the way, The exhibition also has the artist Lorna Simpson in a video reflecting on Armstrong's collages and how they compartmentalized an enormous and complex life into the manageable and portable square of a tape case. She said, Armstrong archives and recontextualizes his public life by hand to be layered and collaged onto the walls of his private life. The gallery display by C&G Partners is full of circular motifs, reminiscent of musical notes or records. In determining the palette for the center, Jefferson and Caples, the architects, looked at Armstrong's art and his wardrobe, his home with rooms in shades of electric blue or creamy peach, was mostly styled by Lucille, but he loved it, especially the spaces with gilded or reflective surfaces. Capel said, so it gave us the cue that we should not be too mousy, and that was this a pub, me, and that this was a public building where there could be some expansiveness. The club space at the center, which recently hosted a rehearsal of trumpeters for the Newport Jazz Festival's Armstrong Tribute, is a vibrant red. Moran made sure that there was a book from the Armstrong's vast collection in every vitrine. They had that kind of political library that was investigating their role in society, he said. Parentheses again. They also were creatures of their era. The full archives include Playboy anthologies and vintage diet recipes. A guide called Lose Weight the Satchmo Way, Heavy on the Lamb Chops, is displayed in the exhibition. Even a longtime Armstrong devotee like Marquis Hill, one of the Newport Trumpeters, was moved by these personal mementos. Parentheses. He snapped a picture of the handwritten recipe for Armstrong's favorite dish, red beans and rice. 
a pardon me, a half century old recording of Armstrong discussing how important it was to listen to all kinds of music, inspired a hill composition for Newport, commissioned by the center. Its jazz club, he said, is going to be a new space for what Louis Armstrong wanted, to keep pushing the music forward. As part of an artist-in-residence program this fall, the Grammy-winning bassist and singer Esperanza Spalding will present her project with the choreographer Antonio Brown that explores the era when people danced to jazz. Rooting herself in Armstrong's history and expanding his vision, Spalding said in an email, would develop ways to remerge and reawaken the dialogue between these essential modalities of human expression, the improvising body and the improvising musician. Under Bain, the executive director, the center is also hosting new programming, including dance and yoga classes, trumpet lessons, and events that engage the mostly, pardon me, mostly Spanish-speaking community, whether through music or social activism. Lewis and Lucille were two black artists who owned their own home in the 40s, said Bain. Why can't we have a workshop here about home ownership for our neighbors? If it's in the legacy of Lewis and Lucille, that's what this space can also be. Since it opened on July 6th, the center has exceeded visitor estimates and is adding more hours and drawing fans from across the country. He was one of the heroes I was taught about, said Jean Dumay, 32, a social worker from Atlanta who plays music-oriented trips, pardon me, who plans music-oriented trips with friends, focusing on black history. She went on, This museum gives me insight that I didn't learn in my textbooks. Among the final work Armstrong created after a lengthy hospital stay in 1971 was a six-page handwritten ode to Corona and his happy quotidian life there. In looping script, he extols the virtues of his schnauzers as watchdogs. He said, when the two start barking together, oh boy, what a duet. And his favorite Chinese restaurant. It is one of the treasures that Moran, who said Armstrong's spirit-lifting music helped him through the pandemic, cherishes most. Armstrong's handwriting, he noted, slants upward on every page. The text is just so inherently aspirational, he said. It's in line with how he holds his trumpet, pointing up to the sky, how his eyes look when he plays. It's a slight thing, but it tells us this is how he thinks about life. The Lewis Armstrong Center is located, it says, at 34 through 56 107th Street, Queens, New York. There's a phone number, 718-478-87, pardon me, that's 8271. Once again, 718-478-8271, or you can go to org. Following that, a couple of book reviews. This one comes from the Wall Street Journal, August 24th edition. The Black Homesteaders. Review written by Fergus M. Bordwich. On The First Migrants, written by Richard Edwards and Jacob K. Freifield. 
1862, in the midst of the Civil War, Congress enacted one of the most far-reaching pieces of legislation in American history. The Homestead Act's sponsor, Representative Galicia Grow of Pennsylvania, declared soaringly that the act would reward quote, the soldier now in the field fighting the battles of constitutional free government, as well as the soldiers of peace, that grand army of the sons of toil, whose battlefields were the prairies and wilderness of the frontier. The act offered 160 acres of federal land to any citizen who would build a home on it and farm it for the first, pardon me, for at least five years. In The First Migrants, Richard Edwards and Jacob Freifield reveal the neglected and surprising saga of black homesteading. As they show, it set the stage for the mass flight from the Jim Crow South in the 20th century. Black homesteaders constituted the vanguard of the Great Migration by demonstrating that black Southerners, quote, could leave the region and, using their talents, ingenuity, pluck, and fortitude, make successful lives for themselves elsewhere. For blacks, homesteading meant more than economic opportunity. From the 1870s on, it provided an escape from violence and rule by white, quote, redeemers in the South determined to overturn the constitutional protections won during Reconstruction. In the West, black settlers could manage their own affairs, do business with anyone they wanted, and hold local political office without fear of assassination. The authors, Mr. Edwards, is a former director of the Center for Great Plains Studies in Lincoln, Nebraska, and Mr. Freifold, a historian who, with Mr. Edwards, has written a previous book on homesteading. Deliver their deeply researched account in brisk, straightforward, if sometimes repetitious, prose. Their aim is to frame the black experience against the backdrop of the broader homestead movement. To be sure, homesteading was not for the faint of heart. This land was an enigma. It was like a horse that no one knows how to break to harness, that runs wild and kicks things to pieces. Willa Cather wrote in her 1913 novel, O Pioneers, parentheses, Cather's family had been homesteaders. Prairie fires, cyclones, gyrating crop prices, exorbitant freight costs, and isolation tried the spirit of even the most dedicated settlers. The sheer emptiness of the prairie could be a shock. Recalled one black newcomer, my eyes ached from looking so far and seeing nothing. Some 20 black settlements were founded from the Dakotas to New Mexico between the 1870s and 1910s. Some migrants were experienced farmers, but others were aspiring businessmen, lawyers hoping to hang out a shingle, ex-soldiers, and opportunity-seeking workers. They typically invested between $200 and $1,000 per family, a significant sum at that time, for travel, tools, and supplies. The homesteaders' progress was followed in the national black press, where it figured in the debate between racial accommodationists such as Booker T. Washington, who urged blacks to work quietly for betterment in the segregated South, 
and political radicals like W.E.B. Du Bois, who urged immigration to the freer North and West. Messrs. Edward and Freifold devote a good deal of attention to the Kansas town of Nicodemus, west of Topeka, which was established in 1877 by black homesteaders from Kentucky and Tennessee. After a rocky start, frame houses, a schoolhouse, a general store, and two churches rose to serve a population that grew to more than 300, including white settlers who blended into the community, apparently without friction. At Nicodemus, blacks and whites served together in the local literary society, cornet band, and benevolent societies, and alternated as speakers at the town's Fourth of July festivities. In the Nebraska town of DeWitty, Hester and Charles Meehan lived for decades as an interracial couple in open defiance of the state's anti-miscegenation army laws. Black candidates won election to public office in a number of predominantly white Nebraska counties. There were exceptions to such harmonious relations. The authors cite the disheartening example of African-American settlers in Blackdom, New Mexico, who in the 1910s were denied service at restaurants, hotels, and businesses in nearby Roswell. For white and black settlers alike, the heyday of homesteading was brief. Much of the West was too dry to sustain farming on the eastern model. Once plowed, thin layers of topsoil blew away in the wind. More than half of all homesteaders eventually sold their land or walked away from it. Over time, vast swaths of the plains emptied of settlers, leaving ghost towns. Of all the black settlements, only Nicodemus survives today. As a much-diminished grid of streets punctuated by a handful of homes, a church, and a National Park Service Visitors Center. Although the most grandiose hopes of the Homestead Act were went unfulfilled, it nonetheless transformed enough of the West into farmland to help turn the U.S. into an agricultural superpower. Within the larger picture of homesteading's rise and fall, the authors deem the story of black settlement a relative success. Homesteaders came to see their farms as places where they could, quote, earn livelihoods for themselves and their families and educate their descendants for lives likely to be led elsewhere. Among them were George Washington Carver, who homesteaded 80 miles south of Nicodemus, sold his claim to pay for a college education, and went on to a distinguished career in science at the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. Another was the multi-talented Oscar Michoud, a homesteader in Gregory County, South Dakota, who became a novelist and filmmaker, producing several autobiographical works, including a silent melodrama titled The Homesteader. It is ironic that a book that offers such a sympathetic account of the black experience only glancingly mentions the native peoples who were removed by treaty or force from their ancestral lands to make room for the settlers. For Indians, homesteading was a disaster. Even the reservations that remained to them were often subdivided into individual allotments, many of which passed out of native hands. 
parentheses, a process recounted by James MacDonald in The Dispossession of the American Indian. This shortcoming aside, the first migrants, is an important contribution to black history and the larger history of the American West. Next, an obituary for a woman who was a white ally and passed away in July. Jean Fagan Yellen, who traced former slaves' story, dies at 92. This is written by Sam Roberts. Jean Fagan Yellen, an historian whose six years of sleuthing revealed that what had been presumed to be a 19th century white author's fictional account of a young woman's life as a slave in the American South was in fact a rare autobiography written by a formerly enslaved woman. She died on July 19th at her home in Sarasota, Florida at the age of 92. Her death was confirmed by her son, Michael Yellen. That author's name was Harriet Jacobs. There are only a couple of names that are commonly known of eight, pardon me, 19th century women held in slavery, Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman, said Dr. Yellen during a lecture at Harvard University in 2004. When she published a book about her findings, oh, pardon me, that's, she gave the talk, when she published a book about her findings, which was titled Harriet Jacobs, A Life. She added, both could not write because enslaved people were subject to anti-literacy laws. Their stories in their own pens do not exist. Jacobs is it. Originally published in 1861, Harriet Jacobs' book, titled Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, vividly recounted her enslavement from her birth in North Carolina in 1813. She was taught to read and write by the benevolent mistress whose family owned her. Ms. Jacobs wrote, Though we were all slaves, I was so fondly shielded that I never dreamed that I was a piece of merchandise. She recalled that when she was twelve, she fell into the hands of a sexually abusive plantation owner who, years later, would threaten to sell her children if she rebuffed his advances. Her children had been fathered by another white man who ultimately freed them. She managed to escape, hiding in a three-foot-high crawl space in her free grandmother's attic, where the seven years she read, pardon me, where for seven years she read newspapers and the Bible. In 1842, she fled as a fugitive to New York. While Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl was promoted as written by herself, it was written under a pseudonym, Linda Brent, and was widely credited to its editor, Lydia Maria Child, a journalist, abolitionist, and advocate for women's and Native American rights, who may be best remembered for writing the poem that begins, Over the River and Through the Wood. Dr. Yellen originally came across incidents in the life of a slave girl while writing her dissertation on 19th century American literature and developed a hunch that the book was autobiographical and not fiction. 
a letter from Miss Jacobs found in the archives of Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, provided a critical clue—pardon me—a crucial clue. The letter, which included the line, "I am sitting under the old roof, twelve feet from the spot where I suffered all the crushing weight of slavery," mentioned the names of real people whom Dr. Yellen could match with the characters in incidents. Dr. Yellen's biography of Miss Jacobs delves into the accuracy of her account. Once Miss Jacobs reached New York, she worked as a child nurse for the family of the writer Nathaniel Parker Willis. She was still considered a fugitive, though, threatened with recapture until Miss Willis, Mr. Willis, second wife, bought her freedom from her owner's son-in-law for three hundred dollars in eighteen fifty-two. Miss Jacobs wrote, "The freedom I had before the money was paid was dearer to me. God gave me that freedom." She was reluctant to write her memoir until Annie, Amy Post, an abolitionist from upstate New York, persuaded her. If it would help save another from my fate, Miss Jacobs wrote to Miss Post, "It would be selfish and unchristian of me to keep it back." As an abolitionist and a crusader for women's rights, Miss Jacobs conducted relief missions for enslaved people who had fled behind Union lines in Virginia. She also ran a boarding house near Harvard, from 1869 to 1873. In 1877, she moved to Washington, where she encountered the destitute widow and children of her former owner and abuser. Before Mr. Pardon me, before Miss Jacob. Died there in 1897. She helped support them. Pardon me, them. Her life in freedom was an extraordinary one, as her life had been in slavery and as a fugitive. Dr. Yellen said in the Harvard lecture. Henry Louise Gates Jr. noted in the New York Times Book Review in 1987. That by the end of the 1960, pardon me, the 1860s, only a handful of black women had published their memoirs. The fate of Jacob's text, its loss and rediscovery, makes it an emblem of the history of the black women's literary tradition. He wrote, adding that few instances of scholarly inquiry have been more important to Afro-American studies than has Miss Yellen's. Jean Fagan was born on September nineteenth, nineteen thirty, in East Lansing, Michigan. Her father, Peter Fagan, the son of a Quaker and an Irish Catholic, was a Marxist journalist who, with his wife Sarah, the daughter of Orthodox Jews and a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of the University of Michigan, published a weekly pro-labor newspaper. She received a bachelor's degree from Roosevelt University in nineteen fifty-one. And a master's and doctorate from the University of Illinois in 1963 and 69. She began teaching at Pace University, known as Pace College at the time, in 1968, and was an emeritus professor of English there at her death. She married Edward Yellen, a biomedical engineer, in 1948, and he died in 2020. Together they wrote, "In contempt." Defending free speech, defending H U A C, in 
was published in 2022, about Mr. Yellen's refusal to testify in 1958 about his Communist Party membership before the House Un-American Activities Committee, which was investigating Soviet subversion. In addition to her son, Dr. Yellen is survived by a daughter, four grandchildren, and seven great-grandchildren. Other books she wrote or edited include Women and Sisters, The Anti-Slavery Feminists in American Culture from 1990, and The Abolitionist Sisterhood, Anti-Slavery and Women's Political Culture in Antebellum America from 1994. Dr. Yellen's biography of Miss Jacobs won the Frederick Douglass Prize and the Modern Language Association's William Sanders Scarborough Prize. She also helped establish the Harriet Jacobs Papers Project, a collection of nearly a thousand documents, more than 300 of which have been since been published and are believed to be the only existing papers by a formerly enslaved black woman. Next, another book review coming from a July edition of the Wall Street Journal, A Faithful Transaction, The 272 by Rachel L. Swarns, is reviewed by Fergus M. Bordwich. In November 1838, a sad, if familiar, scene played out on the docks of Alexandria, Virginia, as slave traders herded scores of enslaved men, women, and children onto a ship bound for cotton plantations in faraway Louisiana. They were the first contingent of 272 black Americans that the Jesuits of Georgetown College were selling to prop up the school's precarious finances. Rachel Swarns, a journalist professor at NYU, first learned of this long-forgotten story in 2016 while working at the New York Times in The 272, She has amplified her early reporting into a vivid and compelling narrative that lays bare the complexity of these tragic events and traces, where possible, the fate of the slaves themselves. Slavery, Miss Warrens argues, was essential to the development of the Roman Catholic Church in America. For more than a century, she writes, the Church relied on the buying, selling, and enslavement of black people to lay its foundations support its clergy, and drive its expansion. The proceeds from slave labor, she says, were used to build the nation's first Catholic college and cathedral, among other institutions. Catholics from England arrived in North America in 1634 under the auspices of Cecil Calvert, Lord Baltimore, who planted his colony on the Potomac River in Maryland. He eventually allocated some 20,000 acres of his royal land grant to the Jesuits, property that evolved into a network of slave-worked plantations. Among the colony's earliest laborers, Miss Warrens tells us, was Anne Joyce, spelled with an I, J-O-I-C-E, a free black English woman who arrived as an indentured servant around 1676 and was forced into slavery locking her descendants into bondage until they were freed during the Civil War. For generations, Maryland remained the epicenter of America's largely rural Catholic population. 
Their spiritual needs were served mainly by priests dispatched from Europe until the opening, in 1791, of Georgetown College, the country's first Catholic institution of higher learning. Its creation was driven by Father John Carroll, the scion, scion of a powerful local landowning family. Parentheses, Georgetown, a thriving Maryland river port, had just been incorporated into the District of Columbia. From the start, the college attracted students from non-Catholic families, including grand-nephews of George Washington. But it floundered financially. In the 1830s, new leadership under the dynamic Father Thomas Mullody, a native Virginian and a Jesuit who had studied in Rome, set out to stabilize the college by monetizing the one asset the Jesuits had in abundance, slaves. Some Jesuits expressed anxiety that their slaves might be sold to, quote, heretics, but they were largely silent on the morality of selling their fellow human beings, most of whom had lived their entire lives on the church's lands. Even as condemnation of slavery grew in Europe and in the northern United States, Mullody scoffed at, quote, the American mania for emancipation. Mullady struck a deal with Henry Johnson, a wealthy member of Congress who wanted hands to work his vast plantations in Louisiana, and agreed to buy the Jesuits' slaves en masse. Johnson, a non-Catholic, was regarded as relatively benevolent by the standards of the time. He agreed not to separate families and to ensure that the enslaved had access to Catholic clergy. Promises he only sometimes honored. The sale of the Jesuits' slaves contributed to the economic realignment that was taking place in the U.S. at the time, as the old tobacco-growing economy of the mid-Atlantic faded in importance and the production of cotton surged to new heights of profitability. In all, some one million enslaved people were forcibly removed from their homes in the Upper South to toil in cotton fields ranging from Alabama to Texas. Meanwhile, the nation's Catholic population ballooned as immigrants poured into northern cities from Ireland and Germany, creating an unprecedented demand for priests, churches, and schools, and shifting the religion's center of demographic gravity away from rural Maryland. The Jesuits of Georgetown channeled money, teachers, and supplies to Catholic communities elsewhere, Miss Swarns writes, in the process, transforming themselves from an order known as one of the largest slaveholders in Maryland to one that would become synonymous with Catholic education. (coughs) Pardon me for the dead space there. The mass sale of 1838 she says, was the critical turning point. Profits from the sale streamed into the Jesuits' accounts, eventually totaling more than $130,000, which is worth about $4.5 million today. The money enabled the Jesuits to invest in treasury notes and bonds, generating enough income to support new schools, including St. Louis University in Missouri, Holy Cross College in Massachusetts, and Loyola College in Baltimore. Without the enslaved, Miss Warren's claims, the Catholic Church in the United States as we know it today 
would not exist. In 2021, after years of sometimes tense negotiations with descendants of the Jesuit slaves, Georgetown University agreed to establish a fund of $100 million on their behalf. Half the sum is to be distributed to organizations engaged in racial reconciliation, a quarter assigned to scholarships for descendants, students, and the remainder devoted to the emergency needs of elderly and infirm descendants. The 272, I should probably be saying 272, is neither an argument for wholesale reparations nor a polemic directed at the Catholic Church. While Ms. Swarn's heart understandably lies with the enslaved and their tragic fate, she has delivered a fair-minded account that illuminates the pragmatic motives of the Jesuits and recovers from near oblivion the lives of the enslaved people at the center of the story. Alongside Miss Swarn's sharply etched portraits of Father Maledi and other Jesuits, we meet men and women such as the patriarchal black plantation foreman, Harry Mahoney, who hid the savings of the Maryland priests from marauding British troops during the War of 1812, and his African-born wife, Anna, We meet their children, too. Bibiana, who was sold to slave owners in Louisiana. Robert, who in middle age would be assessed as having no value. And Anna, who remained in Maryland and lived into the 20th century. Capturing more than a wisp of individual slaves' lives is a formidable challenge, given that they rarely appear as more than single names in the accounts of their enslavers, Miss Swarns has brilliantly mined archives and oral histories to tease out buried connections and biographical details. In particular, she manages to weave a striking, if necessarily incomplete, tapestry of Anne Joyce's descendants, who, we are happy to learn, thrived against the odds in both Maryland and Louisiana and rediscovered one another. 350 years after their ancestors' arrival on these shores, in the common effort to persuade Georgetown University to come to grips with its full history. Switching gears now, moving to some current events, as reported by TheRoot.com. This one written by Candace McDuffie. It was published on the 9th. Really? Montgomery Riverboat Black co-captain is now in trouble for his part in the infamous brawl. The massive August 9th fight continues to have shocking repercussions. It was just a matter of time before those involved in the now infamous August 9th Montgomery Riverboat brawl faced criminal charges. The city of Montgomery formally charged the Black co-captain of the commercial cruise riverboat Harriet II with third-degree assault. Damien Pickett, who was charged August 26th, is expected to appear in court November 21st at 10 a.m. Zachary Shipman, the complainant in the case, is also facing an assault charge. Officials didn't publicly announce the charges as they did with others who were charged after the incident. The brawl started when Pickett asked the owners of a private boat docked in the space of the Harriet II to move. Numerous cell phone recordings from passengers on the Harriet, too, showed Pickett 
being physically outnumbered and assaulted by several white assailants. Black witnesses quickly intervened on Pickett's behalf to help defend him, with the footage throwing social media into a complete frenzy. The folding chair became a funny symbol of black power. Last month, Richard Roberts and Mary Todd of Selma, Alabama, pleaded guilty to charges stemming from the brawl in Montgomery Municipal Court. Pickett was in the courtroom for Roberts' plea. Roberts also issued an apology to Pickett. Cases are imminent for three people involved, three other people involved, including Shipman, Alan Todd, and Reggie Ray, who allegedly hit a woman with a folding chair. Crystal Warren, the mother of a 16-year-old deckhand who got wrapped up in the fight, said in a police report that someone used the N-word against Pickett during the incident. You could hear men yelling, F that N, and the men came down to fight my son, she wrote in her report. However, during an October court appearance, Warren testified that she did not hear that slur. Also published on the 9th, written by Angela Johnson, from the music world again, Five Reasons John Batiste is the Root 100's first ever voice and vision honoree. The multi-hyphenate artist is on fire with his latest studio album, titled World Music Radio. Grammy and Oscar-winning singer-songwriter and composer John Batiste is on the ride of his life. The New Orleans native is the first honoree announced from this year's Route 100 list and will be a special guest at our live event on December 5th at the Apollo Theater. Batiste has not slowed down since leaving his post as band leader for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, His latest studio album, World Music Radio, is getting lots of love. NPR called it a sprawling exploration of what global music can sound like. And the Associated Press called it a mesmerizing way to dial into Batiste's eclectic and wide musicality. Later this month, the story of Batiste's last year will hit the big screen in the documentary American Symphony. There are plenty of reasons why we love John Baptiste, but these are the top five reasons we're honoring the multi-hyphenate at this year's Route 100 Gala. 1. Music is in his blood. Baptiste comes from a long line of talented New Orleans musicians. His relatives include Lionel Baptiste of the Treme Brass Band and Milton Baptiste of the Olympia Brass Band. His father, Michael Baptiste, performed with soul greats like Jackie Wilson and David Ruffin. Talk about a sweet-sounding family reunion. His life is the subject of a movie. To say that Batiste's life has been a roller coaster over the past year would be a serious understatement. In 2022, he rode the high of 11 Grammy nominations, including the coveted album of the year. But he was also dealing with the pressure of composing an original symphony, for a performance at Carnegie Hall, and the heartbreaking news that his now-wife Sulika Joad's leukemia had returned and that she would need a bone marrow transplant. His emotional story is the subject of Matthew Heinemann's documentary American Symphony, which hits select theaters on November 24th and Netflix on November 29th. Through a partnership, with the Obama's Higher Ground Production Company. 
Number three, he got Lil Wayne to play the guitar. Batiste's latest studio album, World Music Radio, is a treat for the ears. One of our favorite tracks is Uneasy, a funky collab with his fellow New Orleans native Lil Wayne. Wayne's verse adds a hardcore layer to Batiste's soulful sound, and Wheezy shows off his guitar skills with a solo at the end. He can even give Beethoven a little bit of soul. Batiste is all about using music to break barriers. He demonstrated his chops in an episode of Who's Talking to Chris Wallace, when he completely floored the host by flipping the script on Beethoven's Fur Elise with a blues and gospel interpretation of the classic symphony. Music is put into these categories, right? It's almost like little countries, you know, he said. And I find that with music, that's not as productive. There's a little bit of something that marginalizes artists when you're thinking, oh, I have to play my music in this way or create it in this way in order for it to fit into the market. And he puts on a damn good show. Even if you don't know a single John Batiste song, I dare you not to dance when the man takes the stage. His energy is infectious, and if you're not, pardon me, if you're not careful, he just might make you part of the act by pulling you on stage with him. And finally, it says, get your tickets now. Don't miss your chance to see Batiste and more of the amazing Route 100 honorees at the legendary Apollo Theater in New York on December 5th at 7 p.m. Get your tickets now for the star-studded show hosted by Roy Wood Jr. And stay tuned for more information about our special guests. And the link for that Get Tickets Now takes one to Ticketmaster, who is handling it. And closing with some political news coming from blackenterprise.com. This first one by Stacy Jackson, posted November 9th. Sherelle Parker took control of her narrative to become Philadelphia's first female mayor. Parker's victory continues a 76-year streak of Democrats winning the city. She will replace Mayor Jim Kinney. Philadelphia elected its first female mayor, Sherelle Parker, and she's black. The Democratic incumbent who went up against Republican candidate David O., received 224,142 votes to her opponents, 74,248. Parker will replace Mayor Jim Kinney, who has already served two terms. Her four-year term begins in January 2024. Political races can be battlefields where candidates risk having their past experiences held against them, like ammo, but for Parker... Authenticity was essential to taking control of her narrative as a mayoral candidate. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported that the Democrats said at the Sheet Metal Workers Union Hall on November 7th, I wouldn't allow anybody else to attempt to weaponize my humble beginnings against me. Parker, the city's 100th mayor, added, My real-life lived experience was closest to the people who are feeling the most pain right now in our city, People were yearning for authenticity. Her political platform, which aims to crack down on crime and keep schools open year-round, became a reality because of women in city politics, who Parker said paved the way. I'm only here today because those women decided I was worthy enough to sit at their feet and learn. 
The news outlet reported the new mayor said before voting at the Masidula Mosque pardon me, on the morning of November 7th. So anyone who's watching today, you need to know I don't arrive here by myself. I didn't pull myself up by my bootstraps. There was a community and a village of people who lifted me up. Parker's political opponent, Republican David O., conceded on the night of November 7th. The voters have spoken, he said, and Sherelle Parker is the 100th mayor of Philadelphia. So I congratulate her. I wish her well. It is her responsibility now, and we will all support her to make her the most successful mayor that this city has seen, because that's what is in the public interest. Next one, written by Daniel Johnson, posted November 9th. Mississippi did not go well. Five losses that stemmed from the midterm election. No matter how you slice it, black voters were failed by the election results even after they were mobilized for the first time in years by hope that this time around things might turn out differently. Mississippi was forecast as a battleground state ahead of the 2023 midterm elections. Below are five losses that the state or individuals took due to the results of the race. Number one, Brandon Presley. A cousin of Elvis Presley lost to Tate Reeves, a Trump-supported GOP candidate and incumbent governor. Reeves centered his campaign on the fact that he was a Republican and Presley was a Democrat, frequently linking Presley to Joe Biden and Barack Obama. This was enough for the state Republicans to hold their noses and vote for Reeves, despite his unpopularity. Presley, though not quite as progressive as some Mississippians would have liked, made sure to engage with the state's black voters. Reeves, who was regarded before the election as one of the country's least popular governors, won almost 52% of the popular vote, which was enough to avoid a runoff. According to CNN, in his concession speech, Presley remained hopeful that the momentum he created could be used in the future. He said, we didn't win it, they did, but we won the hearts and souls of hundreds of thousands of Mississippians. Unfortunately, it looks like we came up a little short, and I spoke with Governor Reeves just a minute ago. We congratulated him on his victory. Number two, Attorney General Lynn Fitch, who is at least partially responsible for making sure that Roe v. Wade was overturned, won re-election. Fitch is on record demanding information about Mississippi residents who got abortion procedures in other states. Her opponent, Greta Kemp Martin, was motivated to run principally because of Fitch's role in getting Roe overturned. Martin kept her focus on access to abortion and also indicated that if elected, she would seek to have Mississippi native and football great Brett Favre and former Mississippi Governor Phil Bryant indicted for their roles in the state's welfare scandal. Part of what led to Martin's political demise was a lack of outside funding. As a Democratic political operative told Mississippi Today, I don't know how in the world national Democrats can look at the success that abortion access has had in other states and think we can look over a candidate like Greta, they said. That's political malpractice. Number three, efforts to fight voter suppression took an L, as Mississippi is one of the few states that does not allow early voting. Early voting allows voters to vote typically one to two weeks ahead of Election Day, 
Reports from Mississippi voters and journalists alleged that locations in the state began running out of ballots, while politicians like Brandon Presley urged voters to remain in line until they had cast their votes. According to the Washington Post, a Mississippi County judge issued an emergency order allowing polls to remain open for an extra hour after nine precincts reported a lack of ballots. Number four. Is it 2023 or 1963? Jackson's NAACP chapter alleged that a police checkpoint that just so happened to be near a polling place at Jackson State University amounting to voter suppression and intimidation. Jackson NAACP President Msombi Lambright told News One it was a very suspicious form of voter intimidation. Mississippi NAACP Executive Director Charles Taylor said officers were checking both license plates and licenses of individuals passing by right next to the largest voting precinct in the state of Mississippi. Jackson State University responded via its Department of Public Safety chief, who said, The JSU Department of Public Safety has many agency partners that help us keep the campus community safe. While we can appreciate these efforts, we did not request the specific implementation of a checkpoint Monday. As a result, we will continue to encourage collaboration and dialogue to ensure our actions are aligned and maintain the public's trust. And number five, five, black voters in Mississippi. No matter how you slice it, black voters were failed by the election results even after they were mobilized for the first time in years by hope that this time around, Things might turn out differently. However, they should be commended for fighting through voter suppression. Black voters should not have to suffer through disorganization, military-style checkpoints outside of its polling places, an attorney general who does not believe in access to abortion, or a governor who refuses to expand Medicare coverage. And in summary, as in many former Confederate states, black Mississippians have to contend with being trapped in a voter suppression state. These are not simply red states by virtue of political persuasion. Some called attention to the fact that what happened in the state, of, in the state establishes that black people cannot afford a political climate where the rules of engagement are created by far-right or MAGA Republicans. That brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Block Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible by funds from the Boulder County and Denver Regional Council of Governments Area Agencies on Aging. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.